many people uh, will regard those believers in Jesus who have different doctrinal leanings than they do with a sense of suspicion, and that's a, a temptation for us. Um, sometimes that suspicion may be warranted, but many times it may not be. We may be unduly suspicious or unduly skeptical of others. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Gavin Ortland. Gavin serves as senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Ojai in Ojai, California. He's also the author of Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage with Crossway. Today, Gavin and I discuss what to do when you disagree with another Christian on some point of doctrine. He shares his thoughts on the pros and cons of having theological debates on social media, highlights the importance of theological humility when engaging with people who think differently, and explains why the metaphor of triage can be helpful when thinking about the relative importance of different doctrines. Let's get started. Well, Gavin, thank you so much for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Hey, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So I want to open with a question, a more personal question for you. Uh, If you can think back over the last, I don't know, maybe say 12 months or so, um, what's what's a significant doctrinal disagreement that you've had with another Christian? And what what happened? What did that disagreement look like? And where did it happen? And kind of what was the result? Well, one of the things that we're working through as a church is a study on the doctrine of creation. we got a grant from the Henry Center at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to study that doctrine for this school year, and that's been an awesome blessing. Been really grateful for it. Um, but a doctrine like creation, you know, brings up different perspectives, and so um, this isn't the first time I've had to work through uh, that doctrine in terms of uh, just navigating differences that may come up uh, among different Christians. But it's just been a reminder of how important grace is and and humility and really careful listening and just how much these uh, doctrines can um, unnecessarily divide us. I know there are necessary divisions that have to happen in the body of Christ uh, based upon theological differences that we have that we just uh, cannot work around. And a difference of conviction means that we cannot be a part of the same local congregation maybe. Um, but there's also doctrines where uh, there can be unnecessary division. And so this is, it's been a reminder for me as we've been reading through some books and uh, just working at it this this Saturday morning, we're going to have a breakfast as a church and we have about 65 or so people coming just to talk, uh, talk about creation, talk about providence. And um, I would say just the the big picture has just been, it's just a reminder that these doctrines can be really divisive, and we have to handle them so carefully um, so that they are not unnecessarily divisive. What form has have these ongoing discussions related to the doctrine of creation sort of taken over the last few months? The, the way I've been framing it for people has been that the intent of this grant is to learn and to, um, to get us thinking, to get us talking about it. It's not to advocate for one view of creation over another view where there are differences among Orthodox Christians. So we're not trying to push for a young earth view or an old earth view or 
for or against evolution in all the nuances that comes with that discussion. Our main purpose is simply to learn and to grow in understanding. Um, and that's been helpful. And then I, I, we also try to situate this as a third rank doctrine, which means it's a doctrine that um, in terms of the specific question of the age of the world, this is not something that we feel we need to divide over. And so we try to keep emphasizing that and then just calling for just charitable engagement, you know, share with others why you see it the way you do. And then hopefully we can learn together. But have you ever been surprised over the last few months um, with just maybe how strongly or emotionally you felt or, or wanted to respond to something that was happening or something that was said? Have, have there been moments where you kind of felt uh, surprised at yourself? Yes. Um, and as I look back over my life, over other situations as well, I can think of times when I wish I had communicated with more grace and with more humility. I think it's always easy to look back and um, just notice how, how easy it is to not have sufficient humility when we're talking about a difference like this. I think one of the things I've noticed is that there can be an emotional component amidst doctrinal differences. Um, there can be a kind of annoyance factor. You know, it's, there, there's some doctrines out there that we might not agree with, but they don't really annoy us. Mm. We're, we're, we're kind of okay with people holding to them. Yeah, right. But there's other doctrines that um, when someone advocates for that, it really gets under our skin. <laughs> and it's it's just good to be aware of that. And then um, I think that's just an occasion to be really careful because when we're personally annoyed by something, it's much easier to fail to show grace and, and love for someone who holds that view. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I think it's easy to, to point to uh, things like Christian Twitter. It's often kind of thrown out that phrase, Christian Twitter, uh, as representative of just how divided Christians are from one another these days. And I think we've all seen it. Uh, someone takes a shot at someone else on Twitter, highlighting some kind of doctrinal problem with the person, and the other side responds with more of the same. And before long, it kind of devolves into name-calling and talking past each other and maybe little else. Uh, And then inevitably, someone will make a reference to Jesus' words uh, in John 13, 35. Uh, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so I guess one, one big question I have is, do you think doctrinal division is as big a problem today as is often made out to be? Or is there... Is social media and some of the that context sort of skewing our perception as to what's actually happening among Christians? It does seem as though social media amplifies the uh, sense of division and anger because in social media there's a particular temptation to um, operate in in unloving and dismissive ways. I often think of Twitter. The way we act on Twitter, it's kind of like when we're in our car and we're more likely to get angry with someone because there's a sense of safety being in our yeah. car. If you're walking down the street, you're less likely to yell at someone because <laughs> it's very vulnerable, you know, yeah. you're right there with them. <laughs> but if you're in your car, it's easier to get road rage. And I think of Twitter and other forms of social media like that, because there's a distance, it makes it easier to be angry and so forth. So I'm sure that does escalate the perception of how divided we are. At the same time, 
just the fact that that comes out on Twitter is is troubling because the verse that you mentioned in John 13 is really important. I mean, we our, our conversations on Twitter are being followed by people outside of the body of Christ. It does give people a, a perception, and that is important. And then I would say, too, even apart from social media, there is a lot of division within the church. Uh, there's the formal divisions that make up different denominations and different sort of sectors of Christendom. But then we also just have lots of relational fallout, lots of church splits. Uh, I know so many people who have been personally wounded by uh, conflict within the church that is unresolved. Um, and then there are doctrinal differences. And there's there's also just a lot of suspicion. Um, many people uh, will regard those believers in Jesus who have different doctrinal leanings than they do with a sense of suspicion, and that's a, a temptation for us. Um, sometimes that suspicion may be warranted, but many times it may not be. We may be unduly suspicious or unduly skeptical of others. So I'm sure social media amplifies this, this problem, but even apart from social media, it seems as though this is a continual area of need and a continual area where we need to be just be careful to uh, get the nuances right. We don't want to let go of truth, but we also want to maintain love. And so we want to get the nuances right of how we maintain both truth and love. Yeah. I mean, when speaking of nuances, do you think there's value in uh, having these kinds of public theological, let's call them debates? Maybe that's a charitable way to talk about them. Uh, is there value in that when often there's a character count and, and the nuance side of things is hard uh, to, to capture? In addition to what you said earlier, just that, that the whole medium can sort of encourage a more aggressive posture towards others. Uh, in light of all that, yeah, is there value in debates on social media and online, or do you think we should just steer away from them altogether? I definitely think there's value in having dialogue about our differences, particularly when it is done with humility and with love and with conviction. Um, in fact, I think one of the uh, challenges that may escalate doctrinal divisions unnecessarily is simply refraining from dialogue and discussion. And we sort of stay within our little echo chamber. And I've been thinking a lot about this because of the work of Jonathan Haidt about how our culture is becoming more polarized and just asking questions as a pastor, what can I do about that? How can we um, create opportunities for respectful, uh, charitable dialogue and debate uh, over areas where we may have differences? I imagine there's a lot of people out there sort of in the pew who on, on various secondary and tertiary doctrines um, have a more dismissive attitude toward the other side uh, and don't fully realize the complexity of the issue and why other Christians disagree because they've, they've been at their church for many years and in some ways this may not be totally their fault. They've just never really encountered people who are on the other side. And we do tend to live in more polarized context these days. And so I just can imagine someone who's in that situation having the chance to observe um, two other pastors or three other pastors on a, on a stage together who differ on various issues, talking that through and modeling the kind of dialogue that doesn't sacrifice the truth. People are holding to their convictions, 
but they're engaging in a charitable and respectful way within those convictions. And I think modeling that is really important um, because it seems as though as a culture, we're sort of losing the ability to dialogue charitably about our differences. And there seems to be so much outrage over uh, the differences that we have that the, the ruling paradigm seems to be more and more to simply shout at the other side or to assume that the other side is evil. You know, it, it, it seems as though you have more, uh, more disagreements today where the assumption is the other side isn't just wrong. They're actually evil. <laughs> they're mm. actually, they actually have bad motives. I think that's right. increasingly true of political disagreement, for example. And so to be able to model uh, charitable dialogue, and charitable dialogue involves assuming the best in my opponent, putting my, uh, my ideological opponent's words in their best light, um, doing what Atticus Finch talks about in the, the book To Kill a Mockingbird, where we go, we, we try to see the world through someone else's eyes. And only at that point then, articulating why we might disagree with that viewpoint, once we've sympathetically considered it. Uh, I think those are values that increasingly we need. What does it look like to assume the best, though, about someone uh, when it comes to a theological disagreement, when it seems like oftentimes the whole the whole disagreement is framed around ideas of who's being faithful to God's Word and who is sort of drifting from God's Word or who is not taking it as seriously as the other side is. It's, it in my experience, a lot, maybe even most doctrinal dis- discussions or disagreements, uh, ones that actually mean something to people, are often framed like that. So, so what does it look like to assume the best about somebody when... Um, the whole conversation is framed that way. Well, one of the values that I have always uh, affirmed as important, but I have felt the importance of more and more as I've been working on this book, is the uh, importance of having theological humility. And I don't think humility about our theology means that we're wishy-washy and we just sort of take an anything-goes mentality. But I do think it means that we hold our convictions with an awareness that we are fallible and that our interpretations of Scripture are fallible. And I think this is really worth drawing attention to when a discussion is, as you mentioned, framed around which side is faithful to God's Word. What humility about our interpretations of Scripture can do in that discussion is to help soften us to a consideration um, that we are all approximating in our theology. None of us have, none of us see our theology with the crystal clarity that God sees truth. All of us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, see through a mirror. We are all imperfect. We, we make mistakes in how we interpret scripture and in how we do theology. And it, I've just been feeling the importance of this because um, it's one thing to affirm our fallibility in theory, but then function as though we really think we're right. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> right. easy to do that. But it really makes a difference if we acknowledge our fallibility and we feel that. We feel the practical weight of that. It's not just a theoretical idea. We recognize that I really do have blind spots. Uh, there are things I will not get right on this side of heaven. And therefore, I need to listen very carefully to other brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I have disagreements, because 
Um, I may see this issue as black and white. I just may see it as a matter of um, the Bible says this and that settles it. I think uh, maybe that that moves us into something you've alluded to already, but the notion that we should think in terms of a tier structure when it comes to the doctrines that we are discussing with one another and recognize that doctrines fall under different tiers. And you draw on the notion of theological triage, a term first coined by Al Mohler. Why did you like that metaphor of triage uh, as a way of thinking about this whole discussion? Part of what makes uh, theological triage so important and part of why I think it's a helpful metaphor coming from a kind of medical context, you know, you think of a a medic out there on the battlefield and there's uh, so many wounds and they just can't repair them all at once. So they have to prioritize the most important uh, injuries. And that is a pretty powerful image for the church today. You know, we're not going to be perfect this side of heaven. There's going to be a lot of different uh, breaches and weaknesses and divisions and problems and errors that we'll see. And we want to prioritize the most important ones. So... um, the, the image to me is helpful because it it captures the sense of urgency. And that's what I would say about this topic is that um, the most important uh, reason for theological triage is the practical reality of our calling as the people of God. Uh, theological triage is not a technical, formal uh, enterprise that you know you go to seminary to do. Theological triage is a practical exercise. It, it, it is necessary for any church to function. You know, there will be differences. Uh, all you have to do is talk to people enough, and you'll disagree about something, you know. <laughs> um, so then we're into it right there. We have to decide, well, what are the differences we're going to tolerate, and what are the ones we're not going to? And I think the New Testament and the Scripture as a whole gives us some values that can shape our thinking about that. And it's certainly not a doctrinal minimalism as though error doesn't matter. It's simply the desire to, for the, the sake of having minimal collateral damage on the kingdom of God, uh, thinking through doctrinal differences with wisdom and with love and with humility. As you've thought about the metaphor of triage over the last few years, um, have have any downsides to the metaphor come to your mind, or, or are there any ways that you think people could be prone to misunderstand or take it too far in an unhelpful way? I think if someone has a passing familiarity with the idea, it could be taken to minimize the importance of secondary and tertiary doctrines. Um, and I have heard people talk like this a lot, where they'll say, oh, such and such isn't a first-rank doctrine. Therefore, don't really worry about it, you know. Um, And sometimes the impression is given that, you know, triage means, well, you figure out which are the doctrines that matter and then which are the doctrines that don't matter. And um, that's really not the intent with triage. Um, In the book, I lay out four uh, possible categories of doctrines. First-rank doctrines are those that are um, broadly around the, the realm of orthodoxy. So they're distinctively Christian. Second-rank doctrines are those that might divide us by denomination or church. Um, they're, they're really important, but they don't make you a Christian. But they might bear upon our practice as the church or how we relate to other Christians in a pretty important way. Um, third-rank doctrines are doctrines that we don't need to 
divide over, but they still matter. So we should talk about them and study them. And then fourth rank doctrines are, are doctrines that really don't matter at all. And we, we shouldn't uh, be too bothered uh, to, until we can figure them out. So an example of a fourth rank doctrine is the number of angels that exist. Um, that's not something that ultimately uh, has a huge consequence for our theology or really any discernible consequence that I'm aware of. Those, there are some medieval theologians who would, who would disagree <laughs> with me on that. But um, the, the, so the intent of that little schema there, and, and certainly there are other ways than a fourfold categorization to do triage or to think about different rankings. Someone could have five or six or seven. But the intent is to say, even the third rank doctrines matter. Even if there are many doctrines where even if it does not justify separation, it still is important to think about because it's taught to us in Scripture and God wouldn't have wasted that space in Scripture and uh, it may have some consequence for how we follow Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, what would be what would be some examples of um, doctrines that would fall in each of those categories? So you mentioned, let's start from the bottom, fourth order doctrines. Uh, you mentioned the number of angels. Are there any other examples of fourth order doctrines that might maybe be a little more surprising to people or might might feel, uh, in your opinion, a little bit more kind of relevant, closer to home than something like the number of angels? Well, one of the examples that came up in uh, various Reformed contexts uh, in, in previous generations is the kind of musical instruments that we use in worship. Um, this is something that may be very practically important. From one context to another, it might be uh, better to do, you know, a guitar and, and, and drums and then an organ in a different context and so forth. So it's not that it has no relevance practically. But in terms of theological importance, in terms of one view being right and another view being wrong, um, this, to my mind, would be an example of a fourth-rank doctrine. It, it, there is not one right way to think about theological, uh, or to think about musical instrumentation in a church service. Um, it's just, a, a, and in, in the Puritan circles and in some Lutheran circles, they used a, a big word called adiaphora to describe some of these kinds of things. And that just means things that are indifferent, uh, thing, things that... Uh, one way or another, it is not theologically decisive. So that'd be another example of a fourth-rank issue. And how about a, th a third-order doctrine? What would be an example of that? Well, this depends on who you ask. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the book, I make an argument that the doctrine of the millennium is a third-rank doctrine. Uh, the millennium, of course, is uh, what is referred to in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 6 this sort of golden era that John prophesies is going to come about. And different Christians interpret this passage differently. Some think that it will be before the return of Christ. Others think it will be after the return of Christ. And there's uh, th three major views on that throughout church history. And that's been a hugely divisive issue uh, in recent church history, though not in uh, previous generations. So I would say modern American evangelicals have tended to fight over that doctrine more so than Christians of previous generations. And I make the case in the book that that's a third-ranked doctrine. By that, I mean that it's important, it matters, there is a right view and a wrong view. We should study to, to get our theology straight about that. But I argue that we don't need to divide over it. 
Um, okay, so what's, a, what's an example of a secondary doctrine then? Uh, this would be another word you use to describe secondary doctrines are urgent doctrines. Why are second-rank doctrines different than third-rank doctrines? That's kind of the question I've been thinking about. And the way I've finally thought about that is that it's not just that they are more important, though that's likely also to be the case. But as I've thought about the different second-rank doctrines I work through in the book, it's that they tend to have a more direct impact on our church life together. So two people may disagree upon the doctrine of the millennium, but in terms of how they share the gospel with their non-Christian co-worker, they could go out together over lunch, share the gospel together, or in terms of how they might worship and organize a, a church service, it will have less of an impact upon that. The second-rank doctrines are more practically relevant to church life. So one example of a second-rank doctrine would be baptism. Um, and for example, the whether we baptize the infant children of one or more believing parent, or whether we only baptize those who have made a credible profession of faith. Uh, these two views are sometimes called pedo-baptism or infant baptism on the one hand, and credo-baptism on the other hand. And this to me is an example of a second-rank doctrine. It certainly does not make you a Christian or a heretic which way you go on that. Um, but it affects how we live together in the church. And if two people have a different view on that, um, it can be very difficult to have a fruitful uh, unity in a church context. One person will be saying, well, we should baptize the babies. And another person will be saying, well, we shouldn't. And that's, that leads to challenges. Now, there are people who hold to a dual practice view. And there's some of the, uh, there's a lot of great churches in our nation including some that I have a lot of uh, personal connections with that I think the world of that do a dual practice view. And so that, that would effectively make the baptism issue a, a third rank issue. In the book, I just in two paragraphs give a couple of reasons for why I, I'm sympathetic, but ultimately unpersuaded of that. So people might, uh, if they're interested in that, look that up. But um, baptism, I would see is generally in the second rank category. Other things that might be in this ranking would be things like different views of church government and church leadership. They make a real, it's difficult to be a part of the same church if one person thinks we should have bishops as a third office alongside elders and deacons, and another person thinks that we shouldn't. Um, or views of spiritual gifts and other practices within the church can sometimes fall into a second rank category. What's some examples of some first order doctrines? that we should, kind of going by the title of the book, be willing to die for, potentially? Well, in the book, I give uh, as examples of first-rank doctrines the virgin birth of Jesus and justification by faith alone. Um, another doctrine that I mention as a, as a first-rank doctrine is the doctrine of the Trinity. And uh, I, I give a, a, some different reasons for each of those. With respect to justification, I, I make it clear that I'm not talking about the doctrine of justification in all of its nuances. There are genuine Christians who disagree on some of the, the details of justification, like how we understand the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us and its active and passive components. Well, Richard Baxter and St. Augustine will see that differently from uh, from. John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards, and they're all Christians. So that's not necessarily first rank. 
But based upon the book of Galatians and the way Paul categorizes the error of the Judaizers of the first century, um, I, I would see the, the basic fact that we are made right by, with God by faith and not by our works. I would see that as a, as a first-rank issue. Paul seems to say very clearly, this is a matter on which the gospel is won or lost. And if you accept a works righteousness, an explicit works righteousness, then uh, as Paul puts it to the Galatians, you have been severed from Christ, which is a very sobering <laughs> judgment. Um, and then I, I talk through the virgin birth as another example of the way that a, a sort of rival ideology or worldview can function as um, a, a testing point for the gospel. And I talk about J. Gresham Machen's work on the virgin birth and his defense of that doctrine against its attack from the modernist or liberal Christians of his day, who really were trying to recast Christianity in a non-supernatural framework. And that's a first-rank doctrine when, when you've got it as a sort of testing point for whether you're going to go with a supernatural version of Christianity that accepts miracles or a non-supernatural that guts all of the miracles out of the Bible. What practical advice, maybe what are three tips uh, that you would offer to the person who is going to be entering into a theological discussion and anticipates there being some level of disagreement in that discussion? Uh, what advice would you offer to somebody in that position? I think one thing I'd want to encourage them to think about is that um, being a good theologian isn't simply about getting theology right and getting the right positions and checking the right boxes. It's also about the whole attitude and ethos and sort of the theological culture that we embody in the way we do theology. Um, ha, you know, I think of in Isaiah 66 when um, God says, this is the one to whom I will look, the one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Um, there's a problem if, if we get all of our theology technically correct, but there's no trembling at God's word in the process. So the first thing I would say is just to, to widen the goal from mere correctness to um, the kind of heart that God loves and that God calls us to in our theological dialogue and effort. Uh, wisdom, love, humility, uh, seeking the fruits of the Spirit, seeking the character of Jesus. That's just a first step of just what the, the goal is that we're aiming towards. And that's a theme of my book, that theological triage is not about, it's not about being smart enough to get the right position. It's about uh, the, the greatest help is love. If, if you truly love the church, that will, that will cultivate the, the, the instincts that help us to do theological triage well. Another practical piece of advice I'd give is to pray for the people with whom we differ, and specifically to pray that God would give you a heart of love. Um, and I think that it's just so easy in the midst of theological disagreement to forget that we need to love each other. Uh, it sounds so basic, but it's easy to forget, you know? And I have a great quote from Spurgeon in the book where he's talking about how much he hates George Herbert's views of church government. <laughs> and it's kind of funny because he's very strongly stated about it. He says, I hate his high churchism as my soul hates Satan. But, yeah, so, wow, okay. But then he says, but I love George Herbert. 
And he goes on to make the point that we, that every single Christian, he says, we need to have a warm corner in our heart for every single Christian, even if that Christian really annoys you, and even if their theology really troubles you. And it's not wrong to be annoyed or to be troubled necessarily. And there may be forms of unity that you can't express. Maybe, you know, unity does not always manifest in local church membership, for example. But he says we still need to have a warm corner in our heart. And he says, basically, if Jesus loves them, you have to love them too. If they are the people of Jesus, and if we love Jesus, we will love the people he loves. And that's, and so I think it's helpful to pray that God would help us to do that in the midst of disagreement. And the last thing that I would say is that we need to continually go back to the cross and to go back to uh, the, the core gospel message and find our justification in that. It is so easy for a spirit of self-justification to come in with our theology. I think it was John Newton who said that self-righteousness can feed upon our doctrines just as it can feed upon our works. In other words, we can feel superior to the next Christian because we feed the poor, but we can also feel superior because we uh, understand Reformed theology, or we understand the Trinity, or, or we don't make the error that we see to be present in some other church or whatever it might be. And we need to always find our identity in the gospel. It's we will have disagreements. Uh, that's to be expected. But the biggest uh, problem comes in when we have when our disagreements are accompanied by a haughty spirit, by um, by a, a spirit of contempt or disdain for others who do not see it as we see it. And it's so important to go back to the cross and say, I am right with God by Jesus alone. He is my righteousness. It is 100% the work of Christ that validates me. Nothing that I have done, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. Now, if that's in our hearts, if the gospel's real in our hearts, it will help us to engage in uh, theological disagreement, not without conviction, but it will help us to do so without any contempt for the other side, without disdain and looking down our noses at people. And so that's the third thing I would say, is just always measuring each different issue in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is, you know, ultimately it all boils down to him, and he's the one we're serving. He's the one to whom we will give an account. And so we want to measure every other doctrinal disagreement in relation to him and his gospel. Well, thank you so much, Gavin, for spending some time to talk to us about this idea of theological triage and just helping us have a framework for theological discussions and disagreement uh, and, and, again, encouraging us to theological humility in all that we do, even when it comes to important doctrines that do matter. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Matt. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. That was Gavin Ortland on Theological Triage. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Finding the Right Hills to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.